0: Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery Exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com.
1: Yeah, hi, I'm Edmund Frank. and I'm an editor of the uh, New York Review of Books Classic series, as well as um, uh, the editorial director of New York Review Books.
0: From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they
1: think. Books have always said to readers, here I am and you have to, you have time for this. Uh, there's time, the relationship of the book is time with oneself as well as with the book. I mean, it's always been as a certain kind of, in fact, luxury item, in the best sense of luxury. I'm Lucas Werner,
0: and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's guest is Edwin Frank. Edwin is a writer, and he's the editorial director of the New York Review of Books Classics Imprint, the journal's influential publishing arm, And one of the great success stories of publishing more generally over the past decade or two. Founded by Edwin in 1999, the mission of the NYRB Classics is to reintroduce out-of-print gems to a new audience, not unlike the way a curator can put an older artwork into a contemporary context. Edwin has dug up and discovered all sorts of forgotten treasures over the years, like three novels by the great writer John Williams, which were overlooked, but one of which, Stoner, has gone on to become an international bestseller in many different languages, or Chekhov's Unpublished Stories, or a fascinating work of journalism by Janet Malcolm. The imprint really runs the gamut, and the books are incredibly popular and have a simple yet magnetic look. And I have to admit that the NYRB classics, Edwin's Brainchild, really is the inspiration for our own Exorcist series, which is bringing back into print uh, writing about art that has been overlooked. In fact, we just celebrated our 20th edition with the publication of Virginia Woolf's Ode to Be a Painter, a collection of her rarely published writings on art and artists. So, Edwin, to start off with, I was curious if you could take us back in time a little bit to the early days, or the early year, or the year before uh, the launch of the New York Review of Books publishing imprint.
1: Well, I made a pitch, but it was also in some sense organic. The New York Review, the the periodical, had been publishing books intermittently through most of its life. It was first founded in 1963, mm. uh, and particularly um, during the Vietnam War. A lot of the review's audience developed during the war because of its strong anti-war coverage, uh, and so there was, in some sense, a kind of almost uh, pamphleteering spirit to those publications to to put out various um, writers associated with the review's takes on 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 the war or uh, on the civil rights movement and things like that. So there was that in the background, uh, and uh, a little bit before that. Uh, some of the Bob silvers had begun to collect um, some, sometimes more more extensive pieces that added up pieces by a given contributor that added up to a kind of book, and some very famous books which were not published by the Review, like, for example, Susan Sontag's on photography, uh, originally appeared in the pages of the Review, so it had by by. You know, the 80s and 90s, uh, a, a reputation for having published, um, you know, sort of not just articles, but uh, books, in a sense. Um, so that was all there. Um, the, but the, uh, uh, the NYRB as a publishing project actually grew much more out of a, of a different program that was um, uh, started by Jason Epstein, who had been married for a long time to Barbara Epstein, one of the edit re- founders of the Review, and was the head editor at random house for a while um which was basically a sales it was a giant kind of catalog bookstore called the reader's catalog and uh and i started working for that freelance in mid 90s i mean and i guess there is a sort of important context here because it also contributed to the opportunity that then arose which was that um nowadays we have a slight at least in major urban centers a, a kind of uh rebirth of the independent bookstore and people and uh But in the uh, late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, you saw an almost uh, a a collapse of independent bookstores, uh, which was associated with the initial rise of the superstores like Barnes & Noble, Borders, some of them, of course, already things in the past. With that in mind, Jason was, was thinking that there'd be people here, there and yonder around the country who no longer really had access to a decent bookstore. So the reader's catalog was going to be a Sears catalog for those readers. So it was going to be the 40,000 best books in print. It it advertised itself as being, and you could browse through it and you would see just as you could browse the shelves of a bookstore. And there was light annotation here and there to say, you know, this is perhaps so-and-so's best novel. This is the most important study of this subject, that sort of thing. So that was the idea. And, and people were, and it was, it was, you know, it was like a bookstore. You were meant to sell books through it. And what, I had gotten involved with this Project readers' catalog in its second iteration. One had, one catalog had been printed, another one was going to be done. And uh, the difference between the two catalogs, one big difference was that the first one had not been computerized. So the second one was computerized with uh, access to books in print. So basically any book that was not in print was excluded. So going through it, in, as my job was, it was quick. I Wrap basically could autom- almost automatically generate uh, a, a list of interesting books that were out of print, and then the proposal was maybe we should put them back in print.
0: So, what was that like in the early years? Was it a couple books a year? Like how did it how did it take shape and grow?
1: Yeah, it was touch and go as as startups of any sort are to begin with. But a good thing is that that basically we went. Kind of all out from the beginning. That is to say, we started with a list of twenty to twenty-five books, um, which is a fair number. And yeah, there was the there was the distinct chance that those twenty or twenty-five books would sit in a warehouse for all time because you have to. We, but we didn't so much have at the beginning or hadn't really. I mean, nobody involved with this had been intensely involved in in book publishing. Everybody was uh, figuring out his or her way, their way, uh, and at the time. And, um, and so issues like, you know, which are crucial to a successful book publishing program like distribution, publicity, marketing, these were all sort of up in the air when we probably when the first book uh, sort of rolled off the press. Um, But we had, we had arranged for the rights of some uh, 20 or so books and two of them did Pretty well from the very beginning, notwithstanding the, the total lack of of adequate infrastructure, which I think amazed everybody.
0: <laughs> do you know what? Do you remember which two? I mean, presumably you do, since they came to yeah, mind.
1: Yeah. Well, the two um, nominally, the first book in the series was um, a reprint of a book of Chekhov, late Chekhov stories and novellas that Edmund Wilson put together for Anchor Books uh, back in the fifties, and that was partly uh, Jay Epstein had been the editor of Anchor Books, so it was sort of a nod to that connection. Uh, and uh, and Wilson was an important critic for me and other people uh, around uh-huh, there, too. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but the two books that, were, that sort of surprised us by by uh, doing well from the beginning were Richard Hughes' A High Wind in Jamaica, uh, and uh, and then J.R. Ackerley's My Dog Tulip, uh, one of the great uh, a memoir of a dog, which was a very, very bad dog, really. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't have a very, very good owner, either. It's a book that people either dog owners either love or they think it's just outrageous
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh that sounds great i haven't read that one though and was it was it clear i mean it was clear that you guys were going to do i mean reprints now of course it's broadened uh Mm -hmm. and and there are newly published i mean you know josh cohen's new novel was published Mm by you i mean that happens more frequently Mm -hmm. Um, but but what kind of editorial vision did you have if any besides what appealed to you as it were? Um, when you were first constructing the list out of, I'm sure the thousands of books that were out of print, into let's say the the you know the, the twenty to twenty five a year.
1: The term, the popular term, curation, which I I don't really like all that much, but uh, but there is a uh, there is a way which I did spend a lot of time. Uh, you know, I, I pursued an art history degree for years uh, and didn't get it, but I had thought a lot about museums and 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 about showing the past to the present and the relationship between the past and the present. And so that was certainly something on my mind. Uh, and and on my mind even in the sense of one of the reasons I wanted to get out of academics is that 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 kind of vital interchange between the past and the present that it felt me that it felt to me that, that to me it felt artists always had. Cezanne looking at Poussin, if you will, and so on, was something that academia actually, with its kind of compartmentalization, really discouraged. It it isolated, and uh, so. And uh, so, and you know, anyway, so that that way of thinking about things was very much in my mind. And so, you know, I the other to be a little bit pretentious, I wanted the series to be a kind of heuristic. I wanted myself to find out things through editing the series, and I wanted other people to find out things. I wanted it did not want it to be, and was in some sense opposed to the notion of calling it classics. A mm. set of you know recognizable properties that all had assumed a known position in the classroom or something like that. Right. But instead, things that were good or raised the even raised the question of really were they good? Old books that were in a way new. Or right. Used. Right. 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 It's
0: interesting because you know as you say, museums have done a, quite a good job, all things considered, in mm-hmm. uh, in branding the past as it were as something that is relevant to the present. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean you. Increasingly today, you have people swarming into museums to look at both the recent past and the ancient past, yeah. um, as it bears on the present. And that really doesn't feel like something that, as a rule, uh, publishing has done a particularly good job at generating. Right, a sense that there is novelty in the past. Let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. And it feels like, and, and maybe that's not true, that it's still the case that for most publishers, the emphasis really is on the new. Right, as much of the new as possible. Um, and and is that is do you feel that way when you look out at, the, I mean, the landscape today or really how it has, as it's developed in the past two decades, that it is still very much kind of this front list or focus on the new or, you know, to the exclusion of other things that could fit the mold?
1: Well, it's changed a little bit. Um, and, uh, and I think we both benefited from and have helped to foster the change in some ways but i always think of a of a point along the way when um you know when we again it was inconceivable that a new paper frank it was inconceivable that a paperback would be reviewed in what was still then a much more robust world of print reviews i mean at that point you know the 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 newspaper in raleigh still had a book page and San Francisco Chronicle had a really excellent book, you know, had something the same size as the New York as the New York Times book review now and so on. Um, so there was, in a way, many more reviews, and and yet it was inconceivable that a paperback, and certainly a, rep- a paperback of a, a reprint, um, would get certainly anything more than the most fleeting, uh, you know, pa- uh, mention. And to just
0: and ask a stupid funny. question, just ask a stupid question there. And that is basically because the, the principle there was you only hmm. review a new book, right? A yep. newly written book that is printed in hardcover as all the best new books ought to be, supposedly, or that was how publishers you know, signaled
1: seriousness. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because it was both a mixture of calculation and also uh, there's also a certain, like this is often the case with various forms of calculation, the calculation, hit get a certain kind of, a practicality had a certain kind of idealism because back in the day in effect sure those book reviews depended on advertising as you know and so and the advertising was going to come for new books from big new publishers um and that is that is the world we live in in the art world (laughs) (laughs) so i know exactly what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) on the other hand there was a certain robust sense that the new the new books coming out were really going to that the that the, uh, the array of offerings made by those publishers would somehow map out, a, a, you know, really were pointing to some sort of broad new world where things were to be found out and, and, and there was a certain forward-lookingness. And so it's interesting to me that around, I mean, the, what I was going to say is there's this moment when I, we, The Nation came and the, the, one of our books, very much a reprint, not a book that was newly translated or anything like that, had the lead of the back of the book, you know, a three-page article about uh, Wayne Lindsay Gresham's Nightmare at Nightmare Alley. Um, and that seemed to me, that, w- that had been inconceivable not only in the pages of the Raleigh paper, but even in the pages of The of the Nation, which is a more rarefied audience inevitably. So there's, there, was, there was some change in the attitude of the audience towards uh, uh, the, your question about the past of the books as well as the present of the books. And, and suddenly the past was in play. Now, why that should be? I mean, I have theories, but uh, but it's an interesting shift.
0: i, I you you're tempting me, so now I have to ask <laughs> what what uh, I, I also feel uh, I feel similarly not only because of our you know uh, Exorcist series, which basically is inspired yeah. by your series and looks specifically at art texts that fall off the beaten path, but i f- I'm curious why you think that there is this cultural shift toward a renewed interest in in things of the past, as it were, or at least these in this specific category?
1: Well, I think um, one theory I have is that the, the readership, on the one hand, uh, books are challenged by a lot of other forms of information or content, as we say these days. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and whether it's a question of entertainment or whether it's a question of actually, you know, of information. Um, there are, you know, there are good TV shows. There's social cachet of a of a uh, of you know certain TV shows is just as great as having read a, one of the presidential biographies or what will. Um, so you get um, so that I think means you have a diminished readership in a way for books, but perhaps a readership which is somewhat more sophisticated. Those people who are remain attached to books. Remain attached um, because books bring them something that only books can bring them, and they probably remain attached because they are aware of books as a traditional item, as something that goes back to a deep past, and is a and so there's that involved in it as well. The other thing I wonder is whether there isn't. Um, <laughs> I was thinking the other day about in light of something else. I, I'm doing that. You know, for the last two centuries, the notion of the century has been very important. At the end of the 19th century novels are full of people talking about the 19th century, which is really, as an idea, kind of a 19th century invention anyway. And the 20th century was full of awareness of it's not going to be the 19th century. And it wasn't the 19th century and so on. But I'm not so sure that the 21st century lives in a kind of post-century world. We're just sort of a wash in the new. And uh, and the new loses its authority when you're when it's everywhere, you know. When it's sort of like it's the new becomes sort of like old bathwater. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, in some sense, certain past things stand out. You know, they're kind of equivocal monuments. They're not. Again, I I don't see people rushing back to read Dickens, which is a pity because Dickens is really really great and new. Right. But um, but I do. It is curious that they look at books like ours, which are you know sort of which are new in a way because people forgotten about them right but which then have peculiarly have a certain authority by virtue of being old new um, right I, that's it's very funny, interesting it's a funny psychological process with it, no so. it's,
0: it's basically you're kind of getting both you know you're yeah. getting new and old in one yeah. you know which is it's and i think that's the you know it adds a contemporary spin or something yeah I, I, I find i mean listen we in visual art that's not old hat but we absolutely see that happening all the time you know that yeah. an artist who is been dead for many years could get paired with another artist or put in a different context or simply shown in a museum where we're used to seeing other things yeah. and suddenly that uh juxtaposition or you know that that kind of jarringness makes it all seem completely new again like the idea of recontextualizing yeah uh, is, is is an idea that's i think ingrained in the way visual art is even
1: intuitively understood yeah by your average yeah. viewer you know what i mean yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the formal immediacy, too of the visual arts in a way. but but yeah, well, know. so that
0: that was it's funny you say that. it's I wanted to ask that next, uh, which is, you know, you talked about losing losing audience to these other other media, right? these other these other these other possibilities. And of course, those are much easier to interact with. By easier, I mean, they are much more immediate, right? And that counts for visual art, which has also seen a huge audience growth in the last ten years, I would say, mm-hmm. just in terms of its. Proliferation or people's awareness of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that in part has to do with the ease of consumption. I mean, great artists should be known by as many people as possible, but as a whole, you know, we're looking at images and we process images very, very quickly and easily. And you said before that the reading public um, is looking for something specific to books. And I'm curious if you would try to characterize what that specific or mediated, you know, more mediated experience, as it were, um, is compared to what can be a very rich immediate experience that you get from a great piece of art or even a great television series right but it is different in kind somehow and it would be interesting to hear as someone who spent who has seen the way the world is going but has spent so much time uh pursuing publishing and books in particular yeah uh, you know what distinguishes that experience that's an
1: interesting question and um you know, the, the general, the, the traditional answer and the answer that's become, you know, a kind of raging cliche in our, our, our society is, is storytelling. Um, and the, there is a certain notion that the story will be as, as um, magnetic in some sense as, you know, I don't know, Velasquez is Venus. Can't take your eyes away from it. Um, and, um, and of course there's true storytelling is, it, there's a great pleasure in, in storytelling, uh, though, um, that use of the, of storytelling, the lines, all the complications, the different ways stories can be told because part of the pleasure of storytelling is seeing how people tell stories differently. But it is, I think for mainstream publishing, still very much a focus and a focus, which has now been, um, taken into the, into, uh, nonfiction. Um but when it comes to the books we publish, some of them are, are wonderful stories and, and you know, kind of uh, something like I and mean, like um what's his name? Ro Rogue Mail, the great book that we did, uh by Jeffrey Household, is which is you know, pure suspense from and beginning to end, completely delicious. So I'm not saying we wouldn't do that. But there is another interest which I think comes with books, which is going to have a smaller audience, and that is an interest in voice. Mm. Um, and that finally is an interest in the question of individuality yep. and the freedom to say certain things uh, and um, and also in the problems that come with that, too. And I think that reading, which inevitably does take more time, is in that sense a reflective, both exposure to voice, and to the questions it raises, and and a way of, of composing one, compo- for the reader to compose his or herself in relation to uh, uh, of that. He takes like Virginia Woolf in *The Common Reader*. She's writing about the books that matter to her, but she is also, in some sense, trying to float a notion of readership, which is. As important as the as great writership in a curious way it is it is a um um no writer without a reader and no no reader without a writer really so it's a dependency
0: yeah you know for those people that are sort of less familiar with with what it means to find great books that are out of print it's a sort of more general question but How can it be, (laughs) how is it possible that certain things fall out of print that are clearly have, Mm. um, such a dedicated and interesting readership, right? And I mean, you've had a number of books, I would imagine, Mm. you know, that you, that you rediscovered. I mean, one thinks about Stoner, you know, John Williams is basically a household name among readers at this point Mm -hmm. because of Stoner and then Butcher's Crossing and Mm -hmm. Augustus. And I mean, all three of the novels are in each of their genres incredible pieces of work hmm. um and i'm just curious again there is no one reason and market dynamics determine certain books don't sell and they fall out of print etc but you know from your perspective how does that how does it happen that something that has a life then no longer has a life
1: well i mean they're the things but these are then we're talking about things that then came back to life sort of about, know. Or, you know serendipitously or whatever the um I mean, obviously, there are books that just that just uh, that just date. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I think these days, for example, of a writer who who meant a great deal to me in my twenties, Milan Kundera, mm-hmm. who I still enjoy looking at, but who I also think, in some ways, just maybe, I, I may be wrong, but uh, there are ways when I look at Kundera, I think you know, this is a great writer for a certain moment. Uh, and which isn't necessarily a bad thing to be. It's actually a fairly astonishing thing to be to be a great writer for a moment. Isn't such that is to be a great writer? But I mean, in the case of something like Williams, you're talking about a writer who really did everything wrong in his moment. Interesting. Uh, in the sense that writing three novels over almost as many decades, and each of them a totally different kind of novel, is an excellent way not to have a successful career. And then, you know, to have, in a way, your finest novel be about, uh, you know, a, an unsuccessful and slightly pathetic academic in Missouri is also, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, it is fascinating, though. What's more uh, difficult to say is why do suddenly, you know, why do books suddenly wake up or why do people wake up to books in ways that they, uh, you know, never had before? Um, and... Uh, you know, there's no question. I mean, that's a very that's a very moving book. But why it should have, you know, sold millions of copies around the world? Now it's, it's actually. Crazy if you think about it. It's like a, it's a
0: book book about a failed academic that, you know, I don't know when you guys published it, that has now sold millions of copies around the world.
1: Yeah, and ultimately a more enthusiastic audience abroad than in America, because it's done very well in America too, but it's not done the kinds of things it's done in Israel and in Holland and in, you know, and in China. And that. I don't know. You know, I mean I think it has something to do with what how people think about it, America. Mm. And you know, and in a curious way, it's, it's a, a as somebody else, put, somebody else put it out to me, excuse me, uh, but quite correctly, it is, in a way, an American existential novel. It's a, it's a sort of, I mean, it's, it's an American outsider, albeit, uh, and um, so it has that. It also has a certain kind of Edward Hopper-ish sort of long shadowed American melancholy, which has always had a kind of international appeal. You know,
0: and my my kind of last uh, question, which is related to the success of something like Stoner, but also of many of the books on the list, is I mean, I, I assume I, g- I gather. I know that your audience is growing um, and that there is a larger and larger readership for your list. And I'm wondering about your feelings generally, not not so much about publishing, but just about how books are disseminating themselves, communicating with. Younger people like so sort of what you're noticing and seeing uh, as a publisher um in in the world of readers
1: yeah well I mean I think there is as I said before a kind of um forward looking nostalgia for books in a way, and I mean books you think you have to always figure that one of the one of the things going back to your question about the relation to the visual arts um you know it takes it actually, people have to work to look at paintings as long as you can actually look at a painting for that, that too, you have to go against your brain. And people are, as you say, impatient with the amount of time that books take. But on the other hand, one of the things that being, that books have always said to readers is here I am and you have to, you have time for this, which is something that, the, which makes, it makes a reader feel that, uh, there's time to be be a person in a curious way. Uh, there's time. The relationship with the book is time with oneself as well as with the book. I mean, it's always been as a certain kind of, in fact, luxury item in the best sense of luxury. Um, uh, books have always said, you know, you've had time and education, which of course takes time too, uh, in order to to uh, uh, take things into consideration. Um, so I think that. Appeal is if anything more keenly felt than ever before, and though it's uh, though we all know, you know, we buy books that we never do read. They, those are hopes for a time that never comes. In a curious way, uh, actually, that's a perfectly respectable, seems to do. <laughs> <And> absolutely. Then,
0: <laughs> also, those are yeah. They're, again, the 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 key word there seems to be hopes, right? That that's an optimistic yep. gesture. You're buying yep. the book in hope of a positive time. Yeah, in which you will spend that time reading the book, right? Which it's it's a it's a again a hopeful hopeful gesture. It's nothing wrong yeah. with that. I agree.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that that there is very much uh, part of the moment and part of this both kind of prospect and retrospective character that mark the moment or seem to mark the moment. Um, mm. And um, and I mean I think from younger readers this is something. Uh, it has been so much the case. It wasn't yet the case when when I went to college that you have to prepare so endlessly. In fact, your time's taken away from you, even as you get to enjoy the four years of college, which you know which is certain time away from the job that you may never have again. Right. But it's been I mean, the level of preparation and test taking and a credential uh, you know credential acquiring and so on has has become, I think, fairly exhausting to people. So I think one thing that young people coming out of college, look for is, is a place to to hunt around in and discover things which they which they were not told to do or didn't don't have to do and i hope that to some extent um you know that's sort of like a like a big chest with full of different costumes that's what the the series can provide to me
0: i have to say that sounds like a really nice note to end this conversation on and you know, thank you for, for, for talking to me, but also thank you so much for, for what you're doing, Edwin. It's, it's a beautiful work, labor of love, and more than a labor of love because it's a labor with a huge audience, a global audience, and, and one that is deeply appreciated. So um, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Lucas. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Warner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.